Fiscal 2024 started off like most fiscal years with a continuing resolution. The government is still spending, though, and contractors have lots of opportunities. For the top opportunities in the year ahead, we turn to Bloomberg Government Senior Data Analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Tom, good to be with you again. And many of the opportunities that you point out are actually existing programs, existing contracting vehicles that are not really necessarily impeded by the fact that there's a CR, fair to say? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. That's actually one of the themes you kind of anticipated one of my responses. What we're seeing especially are these multiple iteration contracts, you know, just a few, Alliance 3, Soup 6, CBOSS 2, Protec 2.0, PAX 3, TADS 2, MES 2, IH2, IHT 2.0. I mean, I think the agencies are showing a commitment to established contracting procedures and contracts that work, contracts that have a history of delivering and are to some degree, you know, kind of protest free. You know, we've seen delays with significant opportunities this year, you know, on uh, Polaris, on CAOSP4, and Oasis Plus got hit with a protest in September. So a lot of these self-scoring opportunities are getting hit with protests, I think in part because they're so big and they're really market-defining that companies feel that, you know, they have nothing to lose by protesting and they're having actually some success with it. Now, Alliant 3 unrestricted the GSA's big GWAC with a estimated value per Bloomberg of $75 billion. What about if you're not on Alliant 3, and that's a general services type of IT contract, then what are your prospects? Well, you know, they added another $25 billion to the ceiling on Alliant last year, and you know, probably a good thing they did because it's been delayed along with you know, a couple of the others. You know, everybody went back to the drawing board to make sure their T's were crossed and their I's were dotted after the Polaris protest. But it's a very broad-ranging contract. It's, you know, $75 billion ceiling is huge, although technically it doesn't have a fixed ceiling. So technically, there's no ceiling. GSA got special dispensation. But based on the pattern of spending over the last several years, we see it as, as, as one of a handful of GWACs that are really market-defining. And, you know, if you're a small, uh, well, this is unrestricted, but, you know, for the others that have, you know, small business carve-outs, if you're you know, small, mid-sized firm, you either want to have a slice of this action or you want to be part of teams that, you know, have access to these contract vehicles. So if I'm a contractor, I'm looking ahead to 2024, there's all of these vehicles, the top 10 that you mentioned are, you know, well over $100 billion in ceiling value, and they have different areas that they cover. What should I be thinking about in terms of themes for the government? I mean, the way I look at it, spending breaks down on two basic buckets. One is highly mission-related, and the other is all of the administrative, clerical, housekeeping, just keeping the agency running types of services, mostly, some products that are nevertheless big business also. If you would permit me, let me just back up a second and address this issue of the CR. What we're noticing is kind of an increasingly sluggish pace of acquisition development over the last year. It started with debt breach in late May and June. That got resolved, but then we lurched into the budget debate in September. You know, there was the threat of the shutdown. We finally got to see a 45-day CR. And I think this is introducing an uncertainty factor with agencies who are reluctant to commit to new awards without full appropriation. For example, 
You know, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency recently told interested bidders that they'd proceed with their general acquisition process for a $3.5 billion opportunity to prevent the deployment of, of weapons of mass destruction. And DITRA said, the, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency sponsoring the contract, they said that, you know, we're going to go ahead with the acquisition, but not with a final RFP until we're sure we have funds. And so right now, they've pushed the RFP into the next year, and they're just waiting to see what kind of resolution there is in Congress. So I think one of the things that companies can expect in their planning process is a certain amount of delay. Hopefully, it doesn't result in a shutdown where you know, it has other kinds of implications, economic and, and employment and so forth. But right now, we're kind of in a holding pattern. Funding is locked into rates based on last year's level. So in, in some sense, you know, things like Alliance 2 and Soup 6 that would continue these opportunities, there's perhaps no reason to delay, you know, for budget reasons, the acquisition cycle. But as far as making new awards in these contracts, you know, there'll be people using these contracts, agencies using these contracts will have their hands tied, you know, just, uh, you know, like all the other agencies. We're speaking with Paul Murphy. He's senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. And so the themes this year. Transformation. The agencies, you know, we have about 40 percent of the opportunities are IT and they account for 70 percent of the dollars. And so we're seeing a lot of the latest technology being incorporated into a range of opportunities. You know, AI, 5G, 6G, quantum computing, cyber encryption, high speed networks, sensors satellite communications. These are becoming integrated parts of a lot of opportunities. And it's all kind of reflected in the grades that you saw with the release of the latest, you know, Fatara 16.0 report. Agencies are getting pretty good grades by and large on IT this go around. They're having trouble transitioning off of uh, networks to the new telecommunications contract GSA is promoting. But otherwise, you know, IT is really getting baked into a lot of these requirements, even facilities management contracts. What would be some good strategies then for contractors to pursue to try to keep their revenue levels up? Because we don't know what the final spending levels will be, and there is still that prevailing Republican gambit to take the levels down a little bit. And that's going to come out of procurement because they're not going to lay off federal employees. And so that's not where the cost cutting will come. It's likely to come from procurement. Those are the two big buckets of discretionary spending. But in theory, I mean, any government program that is directly or indirectly administered through you know, contracts could be, the spending on those programs could be affected. So what we're recommending to our clients is, A, you know, you need market intelligence. You need to know, are the agencies moving ahead with this procurement or are they not? You need to know uh, specific terms from your contract officer. You know, is your work essential or is it unessential? Are your employees going to be expected to come in on furlough or are they possibly essential? Is there money in the pipeline available to even pay them? I mean, some contracts, big contracts, you know, defense contracts get advanced funding when they have to buy supplies or, you know, hire up to, you know, add scientists to do some R&D. In some of these big contracts, there's already advanced funding. And so it's really kind of unique contract by contract, agency by agency, you know, what's essential, what's not. A lot of the success in navigating these kind of tumultuous waters over the next few weeks is going to be based on communications with contract officers, contract administrators, watching the intelligence, seeing which steps the agencies are going to make even as they express some uncertainty in, in the ultimate level of funding that they're going to get. Now, the continuing resolution at 45 days was a pretty long one, a month and a half which takes a month and a half out of the 
time you would have to develop new programs once a final appropriation comes through, if it does in fact come through it after 45 days. So it sounds like because we don't have a shutdown and therefore you can talk to the government, this would be a good time to get your government counterpart if you're a contractor and have discussions about what you would like to launch as new once the new money Mm -hmm. comes through. Use the fact that there's no shutdown so that when the appropriations come through, you're ready because it will be a shortened runway, if you will. Absolutely. And see if there's any, you know, assent money that's deemed essential that can be obligated against your contracts that may have, maybe it could be reprogrammed or maybe it was there. Maybe it's a multi-year contract, like a lot of R&D and construction contracts, you know, have multiple years. Some agencies like the Indian Health Service are actually, you know, funded for the next year. So there is, you know, money on some contracts available. I mean, IHS has a lot of big uh, health modernization opportunities uh, moving forward. So you need to understand Every contract in your pipeline or every opportunity in your pipeline, every contract you hold, you know, what is the status of that? And just, you know, run through all your contacts at the agencies and make sure that you have updated information and you're constantly watching the intelligence. Yeah, I think that's going to be, you know, the way that's five. Anything else we need to know? Well, two quick things. One is a lot of uh, particularly the defense uh, technology contracts are emphasizing Global networks, integration, a lot of these opportunities like Air Force Mission Partner, Environmental Army, TADS, and Ditra's Citric 4, they're feeding into this JADC2 global network environment. The other thing is we're seeing a lot of opportunities that have increased ceilings like DHS PAX3, Ditra's Citric 4, VA's IHT 2.0. They're reconfiguring the contracts. They're raising the ceiling, adding vendors. Paul Murphy is Senior Data Analyst at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Uh, Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.